Well, we've taken a little bit of a break from the book of Matthew, and uh, this morning we find ourselves back in Matthew, picking up in Matthew 18. Uh, We left off at the end of chapter 17, uh, right before Easter week, and so we are in Matthew 18, uh, looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. And as you can see on the screen, that is on page number 978 of your pew Bibles, and I encourage you to turn there and to follow along as we read through uh, the passage. Okay, hear the word of the Lord. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. and It almost seemed like two different passages there as we read the first part about children and being welcomed in the second part about cutting off our hands and feet. And God, we pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would show us what it is you're saying to your people, that we might think of you rightly and think of ourselves rightly, and then respond to you um, how we ought to respond. God, I pray that you would open up hearts and minds this morning to your word. I pray, God, that you would move in a powerful way by your Holy Spirit, causing us to see you and your glory and your power and your goodness and your holiness, and then to find refuge in Jesus, where the only place that, where, that refuge can be found. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Well, I have one simple goal this morning with this passage. Um, Here, Jesus is teaching us how we are to love the little ones. That's why we called the sermon what we did. In fact, throughout everything Jesus is going to say in this entire chapter, he's teaching the church how we are to love the little ones. But this passage also has this really terrible warning 
In verses 8 and 9, about cutting off our hands and feet and gouging out our eyes if they cause us to sin so that we don't end up in hell. Uh, Which to our ears, it doesn't seem to go very well with a passage about loving the little ones. And so the goal is simple. What is Jesus teaching us that we need to do to love the little ones And how does this really strange warning about mutilating our bodies in order to avoid hell have anything to do with loving little ones? So first, we need to know who are the little ones. And then we need to know why is it so important that we love the little ones. And I almost want to add, love the little ones in the way that Jesus teaches us to love them here. And finally, we'll end with how we are to love the little ones. So let's jump, jump in. Who are the little ones? Uh, so this passage identifies several different groups of people. It begins with the disciples wanting to know who's the greatest in the kingdom in, in verse 1 and verse 4. And then verses 3 through 5, Jesus is talking about becoming a child and being a child and receiving a child. And then in verse 6, he talks about little ones who believe in him. And so the first thing we need to do this morning is figure out who all these people are. Are they the same group of people? Are they different groups of people? So we begin with this question from the disciples. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I don't expect everyone to have chapter 17 fresh on their minds. Uh, So let me remind you of where we left off at the end of chapter 17. Uh, It ends with Jesus claiming to be the Son of God. And the way he makes this claim is he's asked whether or not he has to pay the temple tax in Jerusalem. And he says, just like the son of a king doesn't pay taxes in his kingdom, so Jesus doesn't pay taxes in the kingdom of heaven. Meaning he is the son of the king of heaven. Which makes the disciples wonder, well, if Jesus is the son of the king of heaven, and we're his closest companions, that means we must be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so which one of us is the greatest? That's actually how the question is posed to Jesus when this story is told in the book of Mark. And this is how Jesus answers. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this is an object lesson. Uh, Jesus is not talking about literal children here. He's using a child to say this is like that. We're all familiar with various object lessons. Uh, One of my favorites is the one where you stand on a table and all your teammates stand behind you and you fall backwards into their arms. That is a powerful object lesson that shows us what trust is like. Another one of my favorite object lessons is when you take a a clear cup of water and you put one little drop of black food coloring in there. And what happens? Well, it permeates the whole cup. All of a sudden, what was once clear water is all of a sudden black and murky and cloudy. Just from one little drop of food coloring. And that shows us what sin is like. How easily a little bit of sin infects our whole lives. This is like that. So the disciples' question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And Jesus' answer is basically, don't worry about who is the greatest because you have to turn or change, or one translation says, be converted and become like the least greatest person in all of society to even enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who enter the kingdom of heaven are like this child, Jesus is saying. And then he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so now Jesus answers their question. And he tells them that the greatest in the kingdom is the person who does not know or even care whether or not they're the greatest. That is why baptizing children is such a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Jesus is letting them know that they are thinking about the kingdom of heaven as if it's just like the kingdoms of this world where we fight and claw and step on each other to get to the top. Now, Jesus is not talking about all the ways that children are selfish or foolish or uninformed about the basic realities of life. No. He's talking about how children have no status, no power, no ability, no privilege, no authority. They're dependent. They're not self-conscious. That's why children will play with anybody. Rich kid, poor kid, they'll play together. Black kid, white kid, they'll play together because all they see is another kid to go play with. But mostly children are trusting. That's why we have to warn them about strangers because they'll get into a car with anyone who offers them candy. And Jesus is saying that to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must turn from trusting ourselves and become like a child with no status of our own, completely dependent, and trusting in Jesus alone. Like a child, we have no right to the kingdom. We can't earn a place in it. But also like a child, we trust Jesus that he's going to give it to us simply because he promised that he would. And that's how we enter the kingdom. And then Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We're going to look at these two verses a little more closely later, but for now, we're, we're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Is talking about. And so let's just track the train of thought here. In verse 3, Jesus says we must turn and become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 5, he says, anyone who receives one such child receives me. Meaning, anyone who receives a person who has turned and become like a child receives Jesus. And then in verse 6, talking about the same exact group of people, he says, anyone who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. So Jesus is talking about Christians. He's talking about believers. Someone who turns and becomes like a child is a little one who believes in him. And he's saying Christians are people who have turned and become like children. Christians are little ones who believe in Jesus. So when we all sing, Jesus loves me right there, it's not just children who can sing that song. It's, it's all of us who sing that song. We are all little ones. I am a little one 
who belongs to Jesus. You are a little one who belongs to Jesus. And just like, just like you love your children and they're precious to you and you, you care about them and you want to protect them and take care of them, that's how Jesus feels about us. We're precious to him. We belong to him simply because we've turned to him and become like a child. So that's who the little ones are. Now, why is it so important to love the little ones? So now that we know little ones are fellow Christians, uh, the Bible is filled with commands about how we are to treat one another. Uh, We're commanded to love each other. We love each other by forgiving one another and bearing with one another. We even are told to correct and rebuke and to teach one another. In fact, the Gospel of John, uh, there Jesus tells us that one of the ways that the world will know that we are Christians is as we love one another. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to help us understand why this is so important. And the first reason Jesus gives, because Christi- uh, the first reason Jesus gives is because Christians are so identified with Jesus that when we love one another, we are actually loving him. In verse 5, he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So to receive somebody is to welcome them. When we receive somebody, we look them in the eye and we say, you belong here. Just like we looked the Van Dyken children in the eye and said, you belong here. And he's telling us that we are to receive anyone who turns from trusting in themselves and put their trust in Jesus like a child, because when we do, we are receiving Christ himself. It doesn't matter their race. It doesn't matter their sex or how much money they have or don't have. It doesn't matter where they're from or even what they've done. If they have turned and become like a child, Jesus says, they're mine, and and you should receive them. This means there is no sin that can keep someone out of this community. Everyone who turns to Jesus and trusts him like a child belongs here. This is why the church is actually the most inclusive place in the world. It's the only place where there is nothing about us that can keep us out. There is no human distinction that matters in this place. There is nothing we can do to earn our place or lose our place in the kingdom of heaven. We simply receive it as a gift like a child by turning to Jesus and trusting in him. There's no standard that we have to meet through our own effort. Remember, a child has no status, no power, no ability, no privilege, no authority. And Jesus is so united with Christians that when we love each other, we are loving him. The second reason why it is so important to love the little ones is because Jesus will punish those who don't. He goes on. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Okay. 
Well, as we've, as we've already seen this morning, uh, a little one is a Christian. And so if someone has turned and become like a child and, and believes in Jesus, that person is a little one. And here's what I want to point out with this verse. It is a really big deal to Jesus if his little ones sin. In fact, Jesus takes his little ones sinning so seriously that he's going to hold the person who causes them to sin responsible by punishing them severely. So severely, in fact, that whatever he's going to do to them will pale in comparison or sorry, so severely that drowning in the sea will pale in comparison to whatever Jesus is going to do to the person who causes one of his little ones to sin. And he goes on. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. And a woe is simply a warning of judgment. Jesus loves his little ones so much that he's putting the rebellious world on notice here. He's saying, everyone who teaches my little ones in school something evil and wicked and ungodly, I will hold you accountable. Every newscaster, every politician, every business who promotes ungodly and wicked things and confuses my little ones, I am going to hold them responsible. Woe to anyone who tempts believers to sin, whether that's through lying, deceiving, seducing, or abusing. Woe to anyone in the world for temptations to sin. Judgment is coming to anyone who tempts Christians to sin, and Jesus is very protective of his people. And then Jesus says, for it is necessary that temptations come. So temptations to sin are necessary because God has ordained them. God intends to use the freely chosen sinful choices of human beings to accomplish his purposes. Now this is a deep truth here. I'll confess we are staring right into the mystery of God's providence by even unpacking this line in this verse. But think about it. Just like God intended to use the freely chosen sinful choices of Judas Iscariot, King Herod, Pontius Pilate, the crowds and the religious leaders to bring about the crucifixion of Jesus, that's how it works on a large scale with all of sin. We don't know how that works, but somehow God is using freely chosen sinful choices to accomplish his purposes, which is why temptations to sin are necessary. They're part of God's plan. But at the same time, Jesus wants us to know that people are responsible for their sinful choices, which is why Jesus warns the world that he is going to judge the one by whom temptations come. The third reason why it is so important to love the little ones 
is because sin leads to hell. Jesus goes on. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Friends, this is why Jesus will punish anyone who causes his little ones to sin. This is why Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the world for temptations to sin, because sin leads to hell. You see, as Jesus has already alluded to, if someone causes a little one to sin, they're putting their own soul in jeopardy. Because being drowned in the sea would be better than whatever Jesus is going to do to them. And now we learn why. Why Jesus will come down so hard on someone who causes one of his little ones to sin. Because sin leads to hell. And so Jesus says it would be better for all of us if we just cut off our feet and hands and gouge out our eyes, if that's what it takes to keep from sinning. Well, what does this mean? And friends, this means exactly what it says. It means that if we don't take sin seriously, if we don't do whatever it takes to stop sinning, even to the point of doing something drastic, like cutting off our hands and gouging out our eyes, that that is the path to hell. Now, obviously, our eyes and our hands don't cause us to sin. Jesus has been clear in the book of Matthew that sin comes out of the heart. But what Jesus is saying here is that because our hearts are so easily deceived, sometimes we need to radically remove opportunities to sin from our life. And this analogy, it's the, it's the eye and the hand that are creating the opportunity to sin. So if it's late at night, and your computer or your smartphone causes you to sin, get rid of it. Or better yet, tell somebody. Cut off your reputation, if that's what it takes. If your friends influence you into a life of drunkenness and sexual sin, stop being friends with them. Gouge them out of your life. If you are obsessed with your money, give it away. Because the sin of greed leads to hell. Paul is clear on this. In Galatians 5, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is an incomplete list. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says something very similar, except there he adds the words, do not be deceived. 
He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Meaning, it's possible to be deceived about this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It is possible to deceive ourselves and think that somehow we can hold on to sins like this and Christ at the same time. That somehow we don't have to radically remove the opportunity to sin in these ways from our life. That we can be having sex with someone that we're not married to and at the very same time be confident that we are a child of God. If that is how we are living, Paul is clear. We're deceiving ourselves. But wait a minute, Pastor Patrick. I've always thought that if someone is a Christian, they cannot lose their salvation. I thought it was impossible for someone to sin their way out of the kingdom. I'm going to read you a verse from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. In Philemon and Colossians, Paul mentions a man named Demas. He even goes so far as to call him a fellow worker. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and 2 Timothy, by the way, is the last book, the last letter that Paul writes, we read this. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And the Apostle John tells us that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So this means that Demas departed from the faith, one of, one of Paul's co-workers. This is why Jesus has such severe words for those who cause little ones to sin. This is why Jesus says, woe to the world for temptation to sin. But wait a minute, I thought, I thought once we are saved, that we are always saved. And I think we want to hold on to that because I know many of you know people who professed faith at some point in their life and have wandered away. But the truth is, the Bible doesn't actually teach once saved, always saved, because as if, because somehow someone makes a profession of faith or is baptized, that God is now obligated to bring them into heaven no matter what. What the Bible teaches is the perseverance of the saints. If you are his child, if you are his little one, then you will preserve, be preserved, be, you will be preserved till the end. Because God will cause you to persevere until the end. That's what the Bible teaches. Our hope is not in our profession of faith. Our hope is not in our baptism. Those are signs of the thing that we hope in, which is God. 
Our hope is in God alone because of what Jesus has done to save us from our sins. Later in Matthew, Jesus is telling his disciples about the trials and the persecutions that are coming. He says this, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what does it look like? What's the outward evidence that somebody is enduring to the end? Well, according to our verse here, it looks like cutting off our hands and feet and gouging out our eyes, if that's what it takes to walk away from our sin. In Romans 8, Paul says this, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice two things. First, in order to live, we must put to death our sin, but we can't do it on our own. We have to do it by the power of the Spirit. We can't even do this thing that he's commanding us to do on our own. And so when we turn to him in faith and trusting him like a child, one of the things that we're trusting him to do is to help us, to help us walk away from our sin. This is why it is so important to love the little ones. It is literally about life and death. This is how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. It says, Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, and an unchaste person is just a sexually immoral person, no idolater, no adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like will inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, this is a really hard teaching. It is a hard teaching because there might be some here today who are sexually immoral or greedy or idolaters or thieves. All sins that are on Paul's list of people who will not inherit the kingdom. And before today, maybe this person was not even convicted about that or he was telling himself that at least I know Jesus will forgive me, but now he's heard that he must kill his sin. And maybe he's tried before and continues to fail. It is also a hard teaching because many of you know someone who at one point professed to be a Christian. It could be someone you love. And I know that it's, for some of you, it's your child. And now they have departed from the faith. Maybe they say they no longer believe, or maybe their lifestyle includes sins that are on the list that the Apostle Paul has here. And so what are we to do? This teaching is terrifying. And everything in me wanted to soften the blow this morning. I can't imagine how hard it would be to go from thinking, well, at least I know 
she is a Christian to thinking, oh no, she might not be a Christian. But if we are going to love them, how Jesus is calling us to love them here, we must accept this teaching. We must see the truth of their situation. We must accept the absolute peril they are in. Otherwise, we will keep our mouths shut. And that is not loving them. So finally, how are we to love the little ones? This is a question we are going to be asking throughout Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. Next week, we're going to talk about leaving the 99 and going after the one. If what Jesus is saying here is true, and sin is the path to hell, and someone's wandered away, you better believe we need to go after them. In two weeks, we're going to talk about what it might look like as a church to come alongside someone who's wandered away. But this week, the main way we can love little ones is actually by putting to death our own sin. If we think about the logic of our passage today, before Jesus says anything about cutting off our hands and gouging out our eyes, he first warns us about causing little ones to sin. Well, the way we cause others to sin is by sinning ourselves. We influence other people by inviting them to join us in our sin or by teaching them something different than God's word says about who God is and what he requires or what his law says. We can cause little ones to sin by sinning sinning against them, by being cruel or abusive. We can cause little ones to sin by seducing them or by our example. I think of the, the seniors at a Christian college teaching the freshmen how to get drunk. Or an older brother whose little brother wants to do everything he sees his older brother doing. Or parents deciding what movies or TV shows to watch in front of their kids. Or even by the way we talk about other people in our homes. And how often do we think about the weaker brother? Are we willing to give up even our freedoms, things that aren't sin, in order to love someone like this? Temptations to sin must come, Jesus says, but let us not be the ones by whom they come. Let's love each other enough to cut off our hand and gouge out our eyes if that's what it takes to be the kind of influence on other Christians that God is calling us to be. We also love the little ones by constantly reminding ourselves and each other that even though it is sin that leads to hell— It is not our righteousness that earns us heaven. Jesus is clear about that in this passage. We enter the kingdom of heaven by turning to him and trusting him like a child. We don't enter the kingdom of heaven by cutting off our hands and gouging out our eyes. If you're here this morning and you've simply turned to Jesus in faith, trusting him as a child that he will give you everything he promised to give you, which is forgiveness of your sins and the power to walk away from your sin. If you believe that, even if you still feel stuck in your sin, as all of us do, 
then you are a child of God. And as difficult as it is to hear, it's actually the fact that sin is a big deal, and that if we don't take sin seriously, it could cost people their souls, so we must not be deceived. As difficult as that is to hear, that is the very thing God uses to bring us back to Jesus, humble and trusting like a child. Because that is our only hope. It's only by the Spirit that we can put to death our sin. And so this severe warning to us is actually the means by which God uses to bring us back to Jesus as little children, humble, because we can't do it ourselves, and it must be done. So what are we to do? Throw ourselves at his feet and plead with him. I would much prefer, and I do much prefer, to preach about passages that talk about the freeness of God's grace and love and the sacrifice of Christ. I don't relish preaching warning passages but warnings are part of how God preserves us till the end. Warnings are the means by which he causes us to persevere until the end. Listen to the Canons of Dort. Now, for those of you visiting with us this morning, I quoted the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort. Uh, those, I'm about to quote the Canons of Dort. These are ancient, not ancient, but roughly 500 and 400 year old documents that contain the doctrines from the Reformation. Uh, from Calvin and Luther that we hold to in this church. And they've been written down for so long, that's, that's why our theology hasn't wavered much in, in all this time, because we have this written down for us. But this is what it says in the Canons of Dort, talking about God's use of means for our perseverance. And just as it has pleased God to begin this work of grace in us by the proclamation of the gospel, so God preserves continues and completes this work by the hearing and reading of the gospel. That's why we read the scriptures in our service, right? By meditation on it, by its exhortations, right? By it telling us how to live, threats like what we have here in Matthew chapter 18, and promises, and also by the use of the sacraments. You see, it's the, it's the warnings that send us to the promises. It's the warnings that make the promises so sweet. It's, it's the fact that sin is a big deal that, that makes us need the church and need each other because we need to be reminded of the promises all the time because on my own, I forget. I wander away. I get deceived. I drift. I need you and you need me. We need each other. We need to be, right, be reminding each other that, that the only thing, that, that, that uh, the only requirement to be in this room is that we've turned to Jesus and become like a child. Right? That's the promise. And it's, and it's bizarre, but it's true. The, the, the warning that we just went through actually makes the promise so much sweeter. Our hope If we're sitting here caught in sin today, our hope is not that we will ever be able to be sinless enough for Jesus to accept us. 
Our hope is that he will accept us because he promises to accept anyone who turns to him and trusts him like a child. And for anyone you know who has wandered away from the faith, they don't have to become perfectly sinless. They don't need to be saved from their, from their committing of sin. <laughs> they need to be saved from their unbelief. They need to hear the promises of God that God will accept anyone who turns to him like a child. And they will be received back into this community. Easy peasy. If they are willing to humble themselves and turn to Jesus and put their trust in him like a child. Because when we receive them, we are receiving Christ. You see, Jesus is our judge, but he's also our lawyer. <laughs> he's also our lawyer. And so we come to him pleading nothing but the blood of Jesus, pleading nothing but the promises of Jesus. And when we do that, we belong to him and he will preserve us to the end. Let me end with this final promise from Jesus in John 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and um, pray that you will use your word in our hearts and in our lives to accomplish your purposes and that we would humbly receive your word and that we would all cling to Christ as our only hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.